I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Bill Porter, who translates Chinese texts using the name Red Pine. Among the things he translates are Taoist and Buddhist works, and that includes poetry and sutras. He has he's written many books, and I would just say, if, if you are interested in what we talk about today, just go to Goodreads and look him up as an author, and you'll get a list of I stopped counting. There must be about 20 books there, and it's easy to just click on them and uh, learn more. And if you want to buy them, it's easy to buy them online or make a list and go to your favorite neighborhood bookstore. So do that for the details. I will mention that he lived for many years in China, and he is currently living in Port Townsend, Washington. In 2018, he received the American Academy of Arts and Letters Thornton Wilder Prize for translation. And so our focus today is going to be on the poetry uh, aspects of his translations. And we're, we're going to start with talking about Stonehouse. Uh, I know you have an interesting story about discovering Stonehouse. He's not widely known. And uh, maybe you should tell us that to get started. Well, um, I'd say if there's anybody in China today who's heard of Stonehouse, it's probably they heard it from me. There's that, that many people who know about Stonehouse. He's, he's a totally unknown poet. When I was translating Cold Mountain back in the, uh, the 70s, I used a woodblock edition that a Taiwan publisher had brought out. And at the back of the book, he had added Stonehouse's poems. Um, so uh, when I got to the end of the Cold Mountain poems, I discovered this new poet that really nobody has has really ever heard of uh, even the people uh, who in, in the area where he used to live on this mountain. Um, it was I was really surprised. I found one man uh, who knew about Stonehouse. So anyway, not a greatly uh, widely known poet, but uh, a wonderful poet. Because uh, uh, he was not just writing poetry; he, he was living uh, his poetry, and it was a Buddhist monk who decided uh, he liked the hermit life and uh, spent 35 years on this mountain. And I think the name Stonehouse came from, nobody knows for sure, but it was apparently when he was young, the town he lived in had a cave and people called it Stonehouse Cave. And so he, people called him Stonehouse. Wow. I, I completely agree with you. His, his poetry is just fabulous. And, and you even mentioned in... in a couple of other interviews about liking his poetry better than Han Shan, and I, I agree with you. I was thinking that I've been rereading, the, I've reread your books many times, and I was rereading them recently, and I'm thinking, wow, Stonehouse is just really good. Uh, and, and the way he talks about his, uh, his, his life, his daily life, we'll get to Han Shan later, but Han Shan pontificates on Zen topics a lot, it seems to me, whereas Stonehouse does more uh, letting us know what life and the environment around him is like, and that—that's all. That's what I feel about Stonehouse. Just yeah, me too. I'm agreed with you on that. Um, and that's what caught my attention. I hadn't read that kind of uh, uh, poetry before. That was so. Uh, I, was, I was in Taiwan, of course, studying Buddhism, and but I hadn't run into any poets that combined uh, the beauties of poetry with uh, with the Dharma before. And Cold Mountain, of course, was the first one, but but he could be a little bit heavy-handed with the with the Dharma. 
mm-hmm. um, in your face about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whereas Stonehouse is, is much much more subtle. Um, yeah, he's 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 basically just I guess walking the walk and telling you about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, like the, the 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 book you were talking about earlier is called the Mountain Poems of Stonehouse. Right. And that was that was the, the uh, in the woodblock edition I had, and as I began studying more about them, I I, I didn't go to Taiwan as a scholar, and I had no scholarly tools really to speak of. But I eventually picked some of them up, and eventually I ended up in the archives of the rare book section of uh, of the the Central Library in Taiwan, and I found out that Stonehouse wrote another book of poems um, that, that I should say, is his, his disciples compiled another book of poems uh, from what he left behind. And there was another one that I, I published, uh, with, it, it, it was just called Gatha's uh, uh, Buddhist Poems, and I, I recently reissued it uh, with Empty Bowl called uh, Poems for Zen Monks. And so those are his two books of poems. Altogether, he left about almost 300 poems, which is uh, quite a lot, but... Uh, um, anyway, those are the, the the two volumes I have here, and I I thought I'd read a couple from um, the, the book the book you don't have. Great, I got to well, tell you, a, when I went to Goodreads and I saw that at the bottom of the list, I just now ordered it. Oh, great! <laughs> it just came out a couple we maybe a a month or two ago. Um, I'm starting to uh, self-publish little little chapbooks now with my friends at Empty Bowl Press. Was, oh. I I've uh, I'm tired of doing what we call books, you know, the big, thick things that are perfect uh-huh. bound. And um, I, I like these little chapbook things that I sure. could. But when I when I when I do a book, when I publish a book, it's the result of at least two years of work, if not more. Sure. But uh, a chapbook, I, I can get it done in two months. And I'm today. I'm uh, just turned seventy six. So. Uh, running out of years when thinks of, of not taking on uh, big projects and the chapbooks are just sort of perfect for me. Super. Well, let's hear some Stonehouse poems. That'd be great. Well, one thing they, they do uh, in, in the Buddhist world is they have a, a monastic code uh, to, or to uh, regulate the conduct in a monastery, the monastic life. And it's, it's a, uh, Generally, it's it's all divided into four different categories: what you do while you're walking, what what you do while you're standing, what you do while you're sitting, and what you do while you're lying down. So here's Stonehouse's poem. Uh, it's called Four Mountain Postures." Walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along, grab a vine, climb another ridge. Standing in the mountains, how many dawns become dusk? Plant a pine, a tree of growing shade. Sitting in the mountains, zigzag, yellow leaves fall, nobody comes. Close the door and make a big fire. Lying in the mountains, pine wind clears the ears. For no good reason, beautiful dreams are blown apart. That is, that is just super. Following that, there's a series of ten poems uh, called, all with the same title, Below High Cliffs. I won't read them all, just read a couple. Sure. Below high cliffs, I slash and I burn. There's vegetables and grain to boil or steam. 
to satisfy the present, to brighten my remaining days. Looking at a tree in the yard, I count its falls and springs. Mm. Below high cliffs, I spend my days with plants, no sign of people, just leaves in the wind. Valley birds call at dusk. The mountain moon lights the night. A crane taking off from a pine showers my robe with dew. Those are just a couple of from uh, poems for uh, for Zen monks. Uh-huh. Yeah, you, uh huh. Do mountain birds? That was a neat phrase. Ah. Yeah. That is he is that that's what he said. I presume it's the translation's got to be really interesting and sometimes I imagine very challenging uh, to to get out. He said it was valley birds. Oh, valley. That's what it meant. It was an unusual phrase. Yeah, valley birds. Yeah, yeah. Well, the tra- and that's that's why I sort of love trying uh, to translate Chinese. Is it's it's a it's a like almost a telegraphic language, um, and so the Chinese, of course, that is for that phrase is is, is gu niao, uh, valley is gu and niao is birds. Mm-hmm. But a translator, you know, you can say birds from the valley, birds in the valley, but you also have the option of just doing valley birds. Yeah. Um, of course, when you're translating, you're always you're also trying to create a poetic line, um, and the, so there are demands of 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 of, of what you can say mm-hmm. in terms of the rhythm and your and your own voice. So, so you have to sort of figure all this stuff out yourself when you start translating about how you're going to deal with the Chinese. And um, very often you'll run into stuff that you just don't don't have room for. Um, sometimes you you start reading a poem and you realize that the the poet themselves was adding characters, adding words to to make the to to make the the word count. Because all Chinese poetry is is almost all Chinese poetry is is uh, either five characters per line, mm-hmm. that is five syllables, or seven yeah. character syllables per line. So sometimes when you're reading a seven syllable line, you know that that po- the poet uh, didn't need to add a certain character or two, um, right. and was just filling out the line. So as a translator, you so say to yourself, well, do I really want to translate that or not? And mm-hmm. the main thing is make a good poem in the, in the end. And so uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun translating Chinese poetry. Yeah, it's got to be extremely, it's extremely completely engaging of your mind when you're thinking of all the options. That's just what you said. Now, I like Valley Bird. That's just interesting, you know, as a phrase rather than something more common like birds in the valley. That's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you know, in one of your other interviews, you said, uh, I'll get you, you talk about this a little bit. You said translation is a dance. And I thought that's a real interesting thing to say. Why don't you tell the folks about that? Well, in 19, in, let's see, 2004, Simmons College in Boston uh, held the first ever international conference on Chinese poetry in America. Um, it was ha- put together by Alpha Weaver, who I think still teaches at Simmons. That was think, 15 years ago, and they asked me to, to 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 write something about how I go about translating. And so I put together uh, something I called "Dancing with the Dead," a little three or four page piece about because I'd never really thought about how I da- how I translate. You just do it yeah. like any like uh, artist or musician. Uh, Sure. Um, but I began to think about it, and I began to realize that it, 
it was like this, this way I sort of described it. I see this beautiful dancer, this dancer on the stage that uh, it's just the movement, the beauty of the dance is such that I want to join that. I, w I want to be part of that dance. And so I go up on the dance floor to join this dancer, but I'm deaf. I have no idea uh, what what music is making her dance the way she does. She hears the music. I don't. I'm deaf. So I've got to get fairly close to her to pick up the rhythms. I can't obviously dance across the room, but I also can't put my feet on top of her feet. And many people think that's what translation is. It's putting your feet on top of somebody else's feet and then moving as the Chinese language moves on the page, the English language moves on the page. It's, people think, well, that's accurate, that's literal, but of course it kills the dance. And so as a translator, I, I have to pick up the rhythm, get close, but not too close. And I become, you might say, I, uh, I expand the dance because here you have a, a solo dancer and at the beginning, and now you have a couple dancing on the dance floor. And so I, that's why I, I, I love translation because it, 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 uh, it's uh, the attitude of, 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 for me, of translating poetry is that the, the dancer I see on the dance floor is not what I'm really interested in. What I'm interested in is the music. I want to know where, what's making this dancer dance the way she's dancing. And I've got to somehow get in touch with that. And I do that through watching her dance and getting close enough to that dance. So I begin to pick up the, the music. Um, and so it's, it, uh, it can be rather addictive sort of to do this because it makes translation into uh, of poetry into, into a performance art. Um, but every time you dance, you're going to do it differently. And so uh, I translate a poem and a couple of days later, I'll look at the poem again. I'll translate it differently and differently. And anytime I publish a book, if I, if I have a say a, a bunch of poems, every one of those poems I've translated twenty, thirty times at least, because um, you keep I keep seeing different things, feeling different things. So it's it's a it's not a the kind of thing where you. you I read the Chinese and I immediately get it and I do my dance and I'm done and I move on. It's not like that at all. Mm. Usually I'll begin, say if I have a hundred poems <clears throat> to translate in a certain edition, I'll, I'll, I'll do maybe up to ten poems. And then I'll go back and look at number one again and number two yeah. and so forth. When I get up to past ten again, I go up to twenty, then I come back to one again and then two. And what you're what you're trying to do as a translator is you're trying to discover the voice of the poet, and you don't know that voice. Even though I know Chinese, every Chinese poet is going to use their language differently, and I don't know that at the beginning. They'll have certain way, phrases, certain ways of using the language that I I think I get because I know the words, but actually I don't get, and I don't get it maybe till poem number fifty or sixty, and sometimes maybe I don't get it at all. So you have to, as a translator, you have to keep going back, keep going back, trying to become more familiar with the voice of this poet. And at the same time, I'm developing my voice as the as the companion of this dancer. So there's two different voices that you're you're dealing with here, but you have to keep working on both of them. Both of them are a discovery, um, and it's uh, it can be. Uh, 
it's a, uh, frustrating at times, um, but it's a, it's, it's a pleasure. Uh, sooner or later, you get it, and you just have a, have a great feeling having this communion on the dance floor with somebody who lived a thousand years old years ago and danced this dance on the page, and there you are on the page, too, just dancing along. It's, I like the thing. There's money in this. Yeah. <laughs> if, if there was money in this, the dance floors would would, would be crowded. <laughs> I, I like the brotherly brotherly feeling I get just reading these guys from a thousand years ago. Well, I mean, translations of their poetry from a thousand years ago. I feel you know this kinship. As I, I imagine what it would be like to be the translator. I mean, wow. Oh, they're my pals. They're yeah. my pals. Yeah. And what you said also about uh, what it takes for you to, to get the voice to go beyond just right there at the surface. Okay, here's what it means. You you also have uh, commented on the importance of how important it was for you to go to, to be in the place, to go to the place, to, uh, to translate more, uh, I don't know if you call it vividly or accurately or whatever, but, but um, I think that I hadn't heard that before. That actually getting yourself like to Hanshan's cave or whatever is is an assistant. Maybe it began because you. I, I'm sort of like a natural pilgrim. Um, oh. I mean, the reason I went to Taiwan was to sort of become a, make my pilgrimage to the to the to the to Buddhism to the practice of of, of the Dharma. Mm -hmm. um, and when I translate, I, I I've never published anything by any. I've never published any poetry. Who, who I, who I've just read out of a book. Um, I always go to the place uh, where this poor person died, where they was born, where they lived, where they were exiled. I just published a book with Copper Canyon called "Written in Exile: uh, the, the Poems of Liu Cunyan, who lived in the Tang Dynasty. He was uh, one of the two greatest prose writers in all of Chinese Chinese history." Um, and but nobody ever read his. Nobody paid attention to his his poetry, and part partly because um, he left so little of it. A uh, hundred and forty odd poems. Mm. And uh, but when Sudong Paul finally re uh, met, uh, found an edition of his poetry, he said he was. This is uh, not just one of the two greatest prose writers in China. It's one of the four four greatest poets. They wrote this great poetry nobody really knew about, and so I discovered it and. Uh, spent us several weeks down in the places where he was exiled down in, in South China. He wrote all of his poems in exile. So by going along, and he wrote the poems about the rivers that uh, are there and, and the trees that are growing, the different kinds of trees and, and things like that. And so, and the light, you know, every, every place is, is, has different light. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to know what direction he must've been facing when he wrote that poem, um, also is important. Um, all these little things sort of make it really helpful for me as a translator when I when I finally want to really get into uh, some poet is to go to the place where they lived, um, and you know, and and pay my respects uh, where they died. Um, yeah, it's a it's a total immersion approach. Um, yeah, I like this. Yeah, for it, you know, to to do otherwise, you know, you you meet people. And you, you you love them, and you just want to be with them, even if they're dead. Would, would you like to read a few more of uh, Stonehouse? Sure. This is from the Mountain Poems, number 18. 
My Zen hut rests upon rocks at the summit. Clouds fly past, and more clouds arrive. A waterfall hangs in space beyond the door. A mountain ridge rises like a wave and back. I drew three Buddhas on a wall. I put a plum branch in a jar for incense. The fields down below might be level, but can't match a mountain's freedom from dust. That was number 18. And now I think I'll do number 32. I saw through my worldly concerns of the past. I welcome old age and enjoy being free. Rope shoes, a bamboo staff, the last month of spring. Paper curtains, plum blossoms, and daybreak dreams. Immortality and Buddhahood are merely fantasies. Freedom from worry and care is my practice. Last night, what the pine wind roared, that was a language the deaf can't understand. So those are a couple of the, the eight-line poems, and now I think I'll right. do a, a couple of uh, maybe the shorter poems, the four-line poems. Right. So he was living on top of a mountain, mm-hmm. and... Um, the most uh, uh, important holiday in China, among Chinese uh, throughout history has always been the uh, Moon Festival, which is we just had it a couple weeks ago. Um, the the full moon, what we call the Harvest Moon, mm-hmm. that's Chinese try to be together. I mean, New Year's is another holiday, but but the the, the biggest one when when people really do make every effort to. Uh, to do something that night is the the full moon, and so he's on a moon, okay, on on, on a mountain in, yeah. on that night. Chi chi mao shi, jin chou ye, bai du hua kai luo wei ti, shan yue ru yin jian lao xing. A thatch hut is lonely on a new fall night, with white peas and flower and crickets calling. Mountain moon silver evokes an old joy. Suddenly I've strolled west of the peak. So he was that he spent that night following the moon. Yeah from where it rose in the east and following the full moon to the west side of the mountain he lived on. And, and you were right there and probably did that too. Uh, I, I, I've never spent a night <laughs> okay. there. Okay. Um, so I, I've never done, <laughs> uh, never moonwalked on, on Stone Hill. <laughs> but you knew where he was looking, for sure. I, I, yes, I did. The last time I was on, on Stonehouse's mountain was looking for his grave and I, I put my foot in a hole and broke my ankle. Oh. I sort of stayed away from Stonehouse's Mountain. Um, I, I don't know whether he was he was just trying to get even with, with <laughs> me for my bad translations or just playing a little joke. Uh. But anyway, um, I, I haven't been there for a while. And usually I don't go to mountains on, in China on, at night unless I'm going to stay in a monastery. That's, that's, that's different. But uh, here's another one. Okay. Yoren 
Someone asked what year I arrived. I had to think before the answer came. The peach tree I planted outside my door has flowered in spring 20 times. Hmm. So he ended up spending um, 35 years altogether on on that mountain. Um, Two different... The emperor asked him to come down right in the middle sometime, and he spent seven years as an abbot of a monastery at some point. But together he spent 35 years up on that mountain. Wow. About, oh, God... It must be a three, two to three hour car ride west of Shanghai um, on the south shore, overlooking the south shore of uh, China's greatest uh, freshwater lake called Lake Taihu. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I am your host, Charlie Rossiter. We have been visiting with Bill Porter who translates using the name Red Pine. He's been talking to us from Port Townsend, Washington. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.